You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Nisha Mehta. This is Jillian Johnsrud. This is Grant Baldwin, and you are listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I froze. Far from a rookie, I had given dozens of speeches in front of thousands of people. Yet when the MC introduced me and used my planned first line as part of his introduction, it threw me off my game. The sweat quickly started to form on my brow as the seconds ticked by and I stood wordless staring dumbfounded at the gaggle of upturned eyes. I froze. For a second. Probably not even enough for the audience to comprehend, but I knew and my mind couldn't help wandering even as I delivered my well-prepared talk perfectly. Why do I put myself through this? Why do I make myself vulnerable in front of a room of complete strangers? It wasn't the money, although the money was good. It wasn't the fame. I was far from famous. Somewhere in the middle of the talk, I looked down and watched as hundreds of eyes and heads swayed with my every word. I could see chests rising and falling in rhythm. I had them. I had their complete attention. That magical moment of transcendence when your words hit the mark, your audience is enraptured, and you are connecting. I live for that moment. I live for that moment. I champion public speaking in our community. Whether it's to physicians or personal finance people, there's no better way to communicate big ideas. That's how I feel, at least. But what about others? Do others in our community feel the same way? And while we're on the subject of using public speaking to augment income, many of us are hoping to become freelancers, small business people, and consultants. And what's even harder than getting that big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we are giving a big thanks to Joust for supporting the Earn and Invest podcast. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com slash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. Nisha Mehta is a radiologist with subspecialty training in musculoskeletal and breast imaging. She is also an international keynote speaker, 
a writer, and a physician advocate who focuses on issues related to life and medicine and the changing healthcare landscape. Her missions include addressing the physician burnout epidemic through physician empowerment and cultural change in medicine, as well as increasing business and financial literacy amongst physicians in order to promote career longevity and career satisfaction. Nisha, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, and I'm excited to have you. The truth of the matter is you are one of the models for many of us physicians in how to have a public speaking career. So I'm really excited to talk to you on the subject. (laughs) Thank you. Jillian Johnsrud at 32 became financially independent. Now it's her mission to help others build a life that perfectly lines up with their values, passion, and purpose. Jillian finds great value in quitting. Whether it's dreams, habits, thoughts, or relationships, nothing is sacred. Quitting enables her to keep only those things that are truly so high value in moving her dreams and goals forward. Speaking topics include intentional lifestyle design, learning how to be courageous in work and life, and building financial freedom. Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And you just started your own podcast, Everyday Courage. How's it going? It's so much fun. Yeah. They say that when most people start podcasting, don't bother listening to their first five episodes because mostly they're rubbish. I can promise you Jillian's first five episodes are completely professional and excellent. So don't skip them. You'll be missing out. And Grant Baldwin is a speaker, podcaster, author, entrepreneur, and self-proclaimed all-around normal dude trying to make a little dent in the world. In the last several years, he has spoken to audiences all over the country at hundreds of events and has given literally thousands of presentations in conferences, assemblies, conventions, and other events. He's spoken to audiences of just a handful to arenas filled with 13,000 people. Grant, welcome to the podcast. It is an honor and delight to be here with all of you fine human beings. Thanks for letting me hang out with you. For sure. And tell me, what does it feel like to speak in front of 13,000 people? I mean, I've probably done a room of 1,000, but 13,000 is huge. I don't know that it's actually dramatically different the 13,000 to 1,000 because at that size, they're not really looking at you. They're all looking at you on a screen. Uh, You spend a lot of time talking to a camera and know that they're just watching you on the screen. Okay. You don't like use that old trick of thinking of everyone naked? I wouldn't recommend that. We don't talk about that much. I don't think I've ever done that either. That just sounds improper. If you want to, to each their own, but I wouldn't tell other people that you do that. (laughs) So Grant, you heard my intro. Tell us about your worst moment up on stage. Have things ever gone totally wrong? Given uh, hundreds, close to a thousand of presentations and some of them go well and some of them don't go so well. And some of them, it is, uh, it's something that you did and maybe you just, you weren't as prepared as you would have liked. And sometimes there's things that go wrong that are completely outside of your control. So I can think of a time I was speaking at a conference up in New Jersey and it was right next to a major interstate and they were working on doing some construction outside and the power for the entire hotel got cut in the middle of my talk. I remember speaking at an event where it was kind of in this metal building and there was a big hailstorm that blew in and it sounded like the whole building was going to collapse. Uh, I remember a time speaking and the fire alarm went off and a time where a dog came running in and comes zipping through the room with 500 people in there and you're trying to like regroup and get the attention of the audience. So there's certainly times where like you come off stage and you're like, that was awesome. Speaking is the best. Let's do this every time. And times you're like, that sucked. And sometimes it's my fault and sometimes it's things that are just outside of your control and that's just part of it. Most novices don't realize that it's the environmental stuff that can really throw you off. If the lights flicker or if there's a loud noise, that can totally mess with your groove. 
Well, in addition, it's not only just that, but it's even just the setting. So for example, I remember a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a conference and uh, I did the keynote. There's 2000 people in the room and then I was doing a workshop right afterwards. And they said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to clear everybody out. And then we're going to have you do this small workshop for about 50 people in the same room. Now, 2000 seats for 2000 people works really, really well. 2000 seats for 50 people feels empty. And so the setting has a really, really big factor in the environment of how a talk's going to go. So Jillian, we talk about this idea that as a novice, you just don't know what's going to affect your talk or what's going to mess you up. Tell us how you first got into public speaking and did it feel natural to you? I started when I was in high school and I, I really loved it. I loved being able to feel prepared and it seemed spontaneous. And did you actually take a public speaking class or debate? Yep. I was in speech and debate. Nisha, it hits me that I always figured that public speaking was a natural skill, especially as a physician. I felt like going to medical school, you naturally had to get up in front of people to talk. Talk about your training in medicine. Did that teach you how to speak publicly? Not sure that I would say that medical school really taught me to speak publicly, but I do think that medical school had a lot to do with teaching me how to adapt to different situations and how to adapt to different audiences, right? Because every patient you talk to and every family you talk to is different. And I think being able to relate to different people in that way and to be able to get the information or the reaction that you need to get out of them, those skills were certainly honed in medical school and being able to speak to different people of different backgrounds. And so I think that that has helped quite a bit in terms of my actual public speaking skills. I guess I also did speech and debate back in high school. And I think I've always, you know, I TA'd in college, I've always been in front of large groups of people. And so I don't think that that was something that necessarily had to get honed in on there. But I definitely think like my adaptability to different situations went up by an order of magnitude once I got used to speaking to different people, you know, multiple times a day for many years. So that was definitely helpful. Grant, a lot of this reminds me almost of that nature versus nurture argument. Can people be taught how to be good public speakers or is it somewhat have to be natural? There's going to be some natural abilities that, that some people have. Some people are going to be very charismatic on stage. Some people are going to be more comfortable being in front of people. I enjoy being in front of an audience and speaking. I feel comfortable doing it. My wife hates the concept and the idea of it and despises that anyone would ever stand in front of a stage. How could you ever do that? That seems like a horrible, horrible experience. And so there's certainly like parts of that. But I also think that there's a lot of the nurture side of it in terms of just the work and the effort that you have to put into it. So for example, you, know, you take like in sports, for example, LeBron James is a very big, large human being who's naturally supposed to playing basketball and is good at it. But he also has to spend a lot of time practicing in order to get to the level that he is. So just because someone is charismatic, just because someone is comfortable in front of people doesn't necessarily mean or guarantee that they're going to be a great speaker. The reality is that the majority of speakers, some of the best speakers in the world are great because of the work that you don't see. So they spend hours and hours and hours practicing, rehearsing, going over their material. So by the time they get up on stage, you think that they're just, you know, winging it or just making things up or they just scribble some nap ideas on a napkin. The truth is like they did a ton of work that you never saw that made them so good on stage. So I think it's absolutely a bit of both, but people who are interested in speaking, even if you don't feel like you're the world's greatest speaker or you don't feel like you're some life of the party, you can still be a, a great speaker. In fact, a lot of speakers are like kind of a misconception is I think a lot of people assume that in order to be a great speaker, you have to be this extrovert. You have to be this you know big personality. And the truth is most speakers I know, most professional speakers that I know are very introverted, myself included. I enjoy people, but I also don't enjoy all the time. Like I have no problem being by myself in a hotel room and not feeling like I need to be around people constantly. So most speakers are like that in terms of they're very introverted and somewhat quiet and shy off the stage. 
Jillian, speak to that a little bit. I may be mistaken here, but I certainly see you as more on the introverted side. Is that a hindrance to being a public speaker? I agree with Grant. I think introverts tend to love public speaking because we have lots of ideas. We have lots of thoughts. But the idea that we would go into a room of 100 or 200 people and have that conversation and share that thought 200 times is exhausting and terrifying. I just want to get up in front of everyone and tell you all my ideas and then we can chat about it afterwards. But I think it's a lot more comfortable because you're not actually having a conversation. You're talking at a group of people and you can be prepared and you can have your thoughts organized. And I think that's really comfortable and and appealing for a lot of introverts. Nisha, I feel like this panel, all three of you are communicators and you communicate in different ways. You go on podcasts, you create blogs, you write. Is there something special about public speaking that gets your point across better than other types of media? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, maybe it's a bias from being a speaker, but speaking is absolutely my favorite part of how I communicate with other people. And some people listening may know that I have a very large online community of over 50,000 people and I'm communicating with them daily, but it's not the same as when I get to meet those people in person at one of my events. I just think the ability to read each other when you're seeing each other face to face, to be able to portray that body language, to see what people are thinking, to see what interests them and to be able to feed off of that. And then really just to have that personal connection. I think, you know, everybody that I interact with in person is always just such a more memorable experience. And that there's just a power to being there in person with somebody and hearing them and being able to get their feedback in real time, whether it be through body language or whether it be through interacting on a panel or whatever it is that you just can't get through a blog where somebody writes a four-line comment or somebody who clicks like on a post that you write. I mean, it's just not the same interaction. So I love public speaking. I think it is by far the best way to get genuine interaction with people. And I'm out there on social media, but there's no communication that feels as personal and has as much of an effect, I think, as being able to meet in person. You connect with that description I gave during the intro when I looked out at the audience and I could see their eyes locked on me and their chests moving up and down with their breaths. That was something familiar to you. Yeah, I love that. Actually, I got to speak to a group of medical students, which I haven't been able to do in a long time. I mostly speak to administrators and, you know, a lot of physician groups and things like that. And I don't really get to speak to med students that much anymore. And to be able to be in front of them and kind of watch them engaged and know that this was the first time that they were being presented with some of that material and just seeing them soak it in and react to it and ask follow-up questions, that sort of stuff is, I mean that's why I do what I do. I love that. Yeah, definitely. I think knowing that people are interested in what you have to say and knowing that it's making an impact, there's no better instant gratification for doing what you do. Grant, I feel like Jillian and Nisha use public speaking in order to teach, in order to get their content out there. To me, it seems like public speaking is your content. So a question for you is, is public speaking a good business? Is it a good side hustle? 
Yeah, totally. You know, there's no right or wrong amount of speaking to do in order of what makes sense for anyone to include speaking in their business. So for some people, they'll do, they want to do a hundred gigs a year and speaking is, you know, 95% of their business and some that want to do, you know, five gigs a year and it's, you know, 5% of their business. And it's not that one's better or worse than the other. You just ultimately have to decide for you what makes sense. What some speakers make the mistake with is having a misalignment between the effort and the work that they want to put in and the results that they actually get. So if I view speaking as a, I'm going to put side hustle effort into it, but hope for full-time professional speaker results, there's a misalignment there. Why am I not getting 50 gigs a year? Why am I not getting a ton of inquiries? Because you're not taking it seriously. You're not putting in the effort because you mentioned on Facebook, you're a speaker, just because you have a website or video doesn't mean anybody cares. You have to be very proactive and consistently like reaching out to people and letting people know not only who you are, what you speak about, but also how you can be a good fit for their event. So speaking is very much a momentum business that it can take a little bit to get some of the momentum going, but speaking leads to more speaking. You start to generate referrals and word of mouth and repeat business and it can kind of build upon itself, but you still have to do some work to get that momentum going and to maintain that momentum in the future. Jillian, do you see speaking as a side hustle? Do you see it as a business the way you use it? For me, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily an end in itself. For a lot of people, especially in their business, it becomes a key part of that, how they meet new audiences, how they connect with those audiences, how they connect with other people. So for me, if I just like stayed home and kept my butt in my chair, there's probably more profitable ways to spend my time, but it moves the needle on a lot of different fronts. And because I like it and because it does have that connection, it's a worthwhile use of my time. You create experiences that you get to share with your audience. Nisha, let's talk about the business of public speaking. You and I have talked privately and I've been privy to what people pay you to go give talks at different universities, etc. It's not a small amount. Do you ever get <laughs> imposter syndrome? I mean, you ever get up there and you're like, okay, they're paying me this much to speak for an hour? I think at this point, I know the opportunity costs of speaking. And so I'm a big proponent in everything that I do of knowing your worth in a particular space. So I don't feel bad about how much I make from my speaking. I think that at the end of the day, speaking is very involved, right? It's not just being there for an hour. So whenever I tell my parents how much I'm getting for a speaking engagement, they're like, they're paying you what to come talk to them? I mean, we can't get you to shut up and they're paying you this much to to talk to you. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I guess so. But then I think about how much work goes into it, right? And at this point, there's not as much work in terms of preparation of each talk because a lot of the stuff is sort of reshuffling and changing things according to my audience. But the heart of the material is very, very similar. And certainly a lot of the slides are very similar. So it's not that that is the effort, but actually putting together that talk, practicing that talk, making travel arrangements, making arrangements for my children to be taken care of while I'm gone, being away from my family for whatever amount of time that is not working those days, all of that has an opportunity cost, right? And so if I'm going to take a day or two away from my physician job to go do an event and take a day or two away from my family, there is a real cost there. So I get imposter syndrome about a lot of things, but the cost is not one of them. I mean, I think that public speakers should be paid really well because they have a role and they have an impact. And there's a lot of time that goes into those speaking engagements. So it's funny because I'll talk to other physicians who will say, you know, I'm doing this event for a thousand or two thousand dollars or something like that. And I'm kind of like, if you want to do that because you're 
getting a message out or it's fulfilling a hobby or fulfilling a dream or connecting you with people that you want, that is absolutely 100% okay to take those sorts of rates. But if you're going to make this a business, it's hard to justify those kinds of speaker's fees for a business as a physician, right? Because your opportunity cost is way too high and being gone for a day or two is way too high. So I think, you know, we all have different reasons for taking speaking engagements. And yes, you've heard some of my higher speaking fees, but I've also done things that are basically at cost in terms of just travel and things like that and not taken as much on the financial front because I really believe in the mission or because there's something else that I'm trying to support. And so it's not always about the money, but if you're going to an event where it really, it isn't necessarily your target audience, where it is more about the business of it, then I don't see anything wrong with asking for your value in that space. So imposter syndrome, definitely a thing for me, but not in the cost realm. Uh, and to piggyback on that, I think that also from you guys that are in the medical field, it's very similar of as an outsider, I, if I go to the doctor, I talk to the doctor for a few minutes. I'm like, you charged me how much? That's ridiculous, right? I recognize like we're also not paying for that 10 minute conversation or we're not paying for a one hour surgical procedure. You're paying for the years and years and years of medical school that she went to and the training that she went through and the patients that she's worked with before that made sure that when she spent a few minutes with me, that it was extremely efficient and effective a few minutes. So you're, you're paying for so much more than just that one block of time that you're on stage. I would add to that. A lot of times when I go give medical talks, they want me to parade around all the clinics and meet with the VPs and the presidents and meet with the community members. You end up spending three or four hours that day just doing outreach before you even actually give your talk. Just to piggyback on what you just said, also, you know, when you meet people, there's follow-up from that. People are sending you emails afterwards. People are connecting you. People are asking you for resources from citations that you cited in your talks, all of those things. So there's always a follow-up process. There's always the preparation before sending your slides for physicians, sending CME-related documents. I mean, all of that stuff takes time. So I don't think anybody who's getting into this should ever feel guilty about charging appropriately for that time. Grant, I want to transition a little from the why to the how. How do we develop good speaking skills? So I think the best things you can do is to, to speak. And that's the way that you get better at anything. So the way that you become a better speaker is you speak. The way you become a better writer is you write. For example, I enjoy playing golf. And so I can watch a bunch of YouTube videos on golf and I can scroll through and read articles or blog posts or magazines. But ultimately, one of the best things I can do is actually get out and hit a ball. Uh, and so the same thing is true for speaking is the way that you become a better speaker is that you speak. And so looking for any and every opportunity that you have, whether that's within your company or you know to speak at a board meeting or to speak at some you know presentation at some local event event or any type of workshop that you could ever give, any type of opportunity that you get. I don't feel like I'm the world's best speaker at all or that I have any special power or skill that nobody else has. I think the reason I'm a decent speaker is I've just done it a lot. And so it helps me to be more comfortable and confident whenever I get up on stage. I think, again, that's one thing that any speaker can do is to look for any and every opportunity that you can to speak because I think it builds that confidence level. Two other things that I'd say that any speaker can do is to spend a lot of time practicing and preparing. I know we touched on that earlier, but I think the best speakers in the world don't just have some magical gift. They spend so much time uh, working and crafting and thinking through their talk. So by the time that they get up, they feel a lot more comfortable. They feel a lot more confident and it's because of the work that they put in. Now, another thing I would say that I think would be helpful for any speaker is to tell a lot of stories. Stories are extremely memorable. They're extremely relatable. And I notice this a lot even when I speak. So if I said right now, hey, let me tell you a quick story. The whole audience immediately, their attention perks up, they're locked in because they have no idea 
where this is going to go. Is this going to be sad? Is this going to be funny? Is this going to be boring? Is this going to be entertaining? Is this going to be inspiring? Zero clue, but it's a story, so I'm in. People love stories. I noticed this last week, for example, I picked up my oldest daughter from local church youth group and I go and pick her up. She just walked out of church. She was in there a few minutes ago and she comes out, she hops in the car, we're headed home. How was church tonight? What did the youth pastor talk about? I, said, I don't really remember, but he told this story. And she goes on for the next several minutes to recite this story word for word. And that kind of helps her connect the dots of like, oh, okay, it was actually, it was about this. This is a story she told me a week ago. I wasn't even in the room and I could probably tell you the story right now. So stories are very memorable. They're very relatable. They're great for connecting with a human. Because again, remember as a speaker, you are a human talking to a collection of other humans. So don't be a robot up on stage, tell stories and stories can be one of the best ways to build rapport and connection with your audience. Jillian, what Grant was just talking about was mostly self-taught and experiential. Is there a place for courses for Toastmasters? I know a lot of people in the personal finance love Toastmasters. Have you ever done any of those things? And do you think they're beneficial? I haven't. So I can't speak to that. But to Grant's point, I think you do need to practice in whatever whatever arena that is, whatever opportunity you have. So if Toastmasters is like the best place for you to practice, I would go and practice. But piggybacking on the stories too, like practice your stories. Find a couple good stories and tell them. Tell them to your friends. Tell them on a podcast. Tell them to your coworkers. Just get used to telling those stories because then when you go to craft a speech, you just need a couple good ideas and a couple good stories. It'll gel the whole thing together. Nisha, tell us about your speaking skills over time. Do you think they've changed? Have they improved? When I look back on talks that I gave three or four years ago, or when I listen to my appearances on podcasts three or four years ago, I cringe a little. So probably, yes, they've gotten better. I think, like everyone has said, so much of that is just practice. I'm a procrastinator, and so almost all of my talks get put together either on the flight there or in the hotel room when I wake up at 4am on that day. I mean, I've got the basic content, but in terms of the actual rehearsal, it happens pretty late in the game. And I know it shouldn't, but my life is just busy. And I think I just perform well under pressure. But I will notice when I start practicing that morning or when I'm practicing in my head on the flight or whatever, I will notice just such a tangible difference between that and when I'm about to give the speech a few hours later. And then when I get up on stage, it's great because that is always the best one. And I just notice, you know, I can see it throughout the day where I say, oh, I was stumbling over all of those words. Or I told that story in too much detail when I was practicing it. And because I was sort of under pressure and knowing, and I was watching the clock while I was giving the talk, I just condensed it down to the heart of it. And it just came out much more smoothly. And so I think practice is everything when it comes to these things. I've never done any formal training, not to say that that wouldn't help, right? I've talked to so many people where Toastmasters and things like that have been really good. I think for me, it's just been a bandwidth issue. Do I think anybody could get better with any sort of training or practice? Yes, absolutely. I definitely don't want to discount that. It just hasn't been my reality. So I haven't had a chance to be able to engage in those sorts of things. And so two of us have never done the whole Toastmasters thing. I I think that there's probably a lot of value to doing that, especially if you're somebody who gets nervous on stage. I think I am one of those people who loves being on the stage. I love seeing people's reactions. I love being able to engage in that sort of way. But if you're nervous, then getting up and practicing that in front of a smaller group of people who you trust in a setting like Toastmasters may absolutely be the right thing for you. Definitely don't want to discount that. Grant, I've noticed that as I've given more and more talks, that I stop thinking of them as talks and think of them more now almost as performances. We talked about storytelling. Is there a bit of acting going on? 
Is there a bit of acting? Yes, to some degree, because I think you're a heightened version of yourself. So for example, at this moment, at the time of this recording, there's four of us here talking. And the way that the four of us are going to communicate is going to be very different than if we were in front of a thousand people or 10,000 people or five people. I don't know that it's necessarily acting. You have to be bigger and everything has to be amplified. So if I'm speaking to an audience of 13,000, which isn't an every week occurrence by any means, that the way you speak to 13,000 people has to be different than the way that the four of us have a conversation. And so if we had the same conversation in front of 13,000, it comes across flat and dead. But if we're having a conversation as if there's 13,000 people here, like you would speak to them, like you come across way over the top and ridiculous. So there is a level of performance to it. And I also think it's important to think through some of those elements and practice and rehearse some of those elements. But at the same time, to piggyback on like the Toastmasters thing, one of the things I don't like about Toastmasters is it can create a very formulaic, robotic, style of performance that, you know, I say this and then I take five steps this way and then I hold my hand this way and then I say these things and da, 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 da. And it's just this robotic thing. And again, it's like you're a human talking to other humans, act like a human. So like maybe we've all seen speakers or we've heard speakers who it just feels like they're so deep in their own head, just regurgitating a script that it's like, what's the point of you even being here? Like just play a video instead. You're just thinking through your manuscript or wherever it is that you're supposed to go. But like nobody communicates like that. Like none of us have a script. I have to read things in this sort of Da, 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 da. You want to have that level of preparation and be able to bring a performance, but at the same time, recognize that you're not trying to regurgitate a script. I think another important part, being willing to be emotionally available in your stories, because I always encourage people like the audience can't feel anything that the speaker isn't willing to feel at first. And sometimes there can be an enormous disconnect in that they're trying to tell a sad story or a happy story or a funny story, but their emotional tone is exactly the same all the way through. And it's really confusing for the audience. So while it's not necessarily acting, you have to be able to emotionally be present in each story and transition from story to story if you're going to create real connections. And for a lot of people, it takes a little bit of of practice. Nisha, can that go too far? Sometimes with some of my talks, when I talk about medical stories, they have deep emotional meaning for me. So I've at times told the audience before I got started, look, if my voice cracks or I have to stop for a moment, just bear with me. But can that also be disconcerting? I think that people want to connect. And so if you can come across as doing that in a way that's not disingenuous, then it's absolutely, I think it can be powerful, right? I've seen some speakers cry on the stage while they're giving a talk and it's, it's a moment for everyone and everyone else is crying and that's powerful, right? That's not my persona. If I were ever to do something like that, I think everyone would be worried. Um, it's just not not who I am. And so there is obviously a point at which it can become distracting if it becomes too dramatic. But I think obviously being invested in your stories emotionally, that's what makes a good speaker. You have to have passion for what you're talking about. And so whether I'm talking about finance and business or whether I'm talking about a patient experience or whether I'm talking about a personal story, if I don't sound like, you know, I'm really experiencing that with them as I'm giving that story, then it's hard to expect that anybody else is going to connect with that and connect their own stories and their own experiences with my story. So absolutely, I don't tell stories unless I feel passionate about them because I know that if I tell something that's trite and that you know doesn't have the power of my experience and my emotions about that experience with it, then it's not going to be memorable and nobody's going to remember not only what I said, but also how they felt when I said it. So 
I only tell stories that I feel like I'm emotionally connected to because there's a reason that I remember them and that will hopefully be the reason that other people remember them. And I think the key is the audience is going to take cues from you. And as long as you seem like you're in charge and the ship isn't sinking, they're willing to go with you. And that's true if things go wrong and when technical issues happen, they'll take all of their cues from you. So if you seem like you still have your stuff together, that's comforting for them. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Grant, Nisha, and Jillian discuss the why of public speaking. After the break, we delve into how to land that all-important first gig. But before we do, I wanted to say thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project, but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of and could be the reason why you don't eventually take the leap. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Joust makes it easy. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Grant, how do we keep emotions in check enough to give a good talk, but also have them feel genuine when we've rehearsed this talk over and over again. We've told these stories over and over again. How do we keep them fresh? You've told the stories over and over again, but it's the first time that that audience has heard it. So you have to remember that each time you give that presentation, hopefully the story, even if you've told it a hundred times, gets better. It gets more dialed in because uh, one of the things we've kind of touched on throughout here is that when you're speaking, you're getting that real-time feedback. At this moment, right now, we may have hundreds or thousands of people listening to this conversation and we don't get to see any of their faces. We have no clue if people are paying attention right now. People may be tuned out. People may be making dinner or walking on the treadmill or doing any number of other things. We have zero clue. But when when you're on stage in front of an audience of whatever size and you're speaking, you get that real-time feedback of, ah, 
they're with me, they got it, it worked, it's clicked, it resonated, or they're lost right now, or anything in between. And so you get that immediate feedback that makes each time you give that talk or tell that story, it makes it better because you know this is how to best deliver that line or this is how to best tell the story in a way that is compelling and interesting and fascinating. So to the whole emotional point, like I think I would agree with what you guys have said. Like I think it's completely fine to lean into that. And if you're telling a story and it causes you to get a little choked up, I think that's totally fine because again, you're a human talking to other humans. So the more robotic and stiff and stale you are, the more like, I can't relate to that. You're telling a sad story. Like it's okay to be sad. It's okay to express those emotions. Now, like Nisha said, like you don't want it to become get to a point where it's a distraction where it's, okay, we get it. You're sad. <laughs> get it together and let's finish your story and let's move on. Like that point, it shifts from like, oh, I just, I literally feel bad for the speaker. You, you don't want to get to that point. And Doc, one of the things that you mentioned was saying, you know, if I get a little emotional, if I get a little choked up, bear with me. I'm always cautious and not preempting any stories like that. Because let's say you say that, but then you don't get choked up. Tell the story fine. Then the audience is like, what happened to the emotion? Does he not care now? I thought... <laughs> And in the same way, if I said, okay, I got to tell you something, this is the funniest thing you've ever heard. I've already set an unrealistic bar. It doesn't matter what I say. You're going to be like, it was fine. you know. So some of the best stories, some of the best humor are things that sneak up on you that I didn't see coming. He was telling the story. I didn't know where the story was going. And next thing I know, he's choking up. Whoa, that's compelling. That draws the audience into it versus you kind of setting up like, hey, I'm getting ready to tell you something. It's going to be real sad. Buckle up. Yeah, everyone get out your Kleenexes. Because then again, you've set this expectation that everyone's like, well, it was sad, but it wasn't Kleenex sad. So I think be cautious in how you set up those stories as well. At the time I specifically did that, I used it to draw people in in the first place. And so it tied into the message of yeah. my talk. My talk was about being vulnerable, so it fit. Mm-hmm. But I totally see what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense. Jillian, I want to go back to this idea of practice and rehearsal. I think all of us have mentioned how important that is if you want to be a good speaker. I know I now have a specific regimen, especially when I have a big talk coming up of how I prepare for it. Do you have a patented way of practicing and getting ready for a big event? Yeah, maybe I wouldn't say I have a patented way, but there is a lot of practice and rehearsal for all of my stories. Like I actually am kind of organized. So I keep like a file of all of my stories and all of my ideas. And these are things that I've practiced over and over in conversations, on podcasts, on coaching calls to see which ones resonate and which ones are working. And then I start to put them all together. And then I practice that. It's kind of like a comedian. I have a couple big talks coming up this spring. So like I'm finding some local audiences. Like I'm going to go down to my community college. There'll be 15 people there and I'm going to test that material. And then I'm going to come home and I'm going to clean it up and I'm going to refine it. I'm going to find the next audience because before I get on a big stage, that is not going to be the first time that I have said all of those words together. It's going to be, you know, the fifth or sixth iteration of that. Nisha, you ever get up in front of the mirror and give your talk and see how you look? (laughs) I don't get in front of the mirror. I've tried that before. I feel like it throws me off my game to watch myself talk, actually. I do listen to myself talk from time to time, meaning I will actually listen back on prior talks that were of similar themes and look back and see what I liked about it and what I didn't like about it. And if I don't have time to practice out loud, you know, or if I'm on a flight, I'll actually listen to a recording of a previous talk that was similar so that I'm kind of practicing as I'm talking. 
I shouldn't say I never get in front of a mirror. I, I think I do get in front of a mirror from time to time to just rehearse certain bits of it, but it's not intentional. It's not like I'll stand in front of a mirror for my whole talk. It'll literally be, I'm getting ready and I'm trying to multitask. So it's not that I've never watched myself rehearsing, but I don't make that a big part of what I do. I did used to do that when I first started, mainly because I talk with my hands a lot and I think it can get really distracting sometimes. And so there was a part when I first started speaking, I was kind of trying to find what the right balance is, where am I really using my hands way too much? Because somehow every picture I would have sent to me from when I was speaking would have my hands doing something crazy. And it's kind of like, oh, do I just always use my hands? I did do that once to kind of figure that out. But I use it more to troubleshoot. There's very few times in my life where I've got an hour to stand in front of a mirror and I don't do it very often. You know, my approach is probably pretty different from Jillian's in the sense that when we go back to debate in high school, what I excelled at was extemporaneous speaking. And I think I do like to go off the cuff a little bit. If you look at my slides, they're usually just a picture or one bullet point or something like that. I'm very cognizant of the fact that if I say things too much, I feel like sometimes they come off as disingenuous if I over-rehearse it. And so I know what the general concepts are going to be related to each slide. And I talk about these things and I write about these things so frequently that they probably are coming off of a script somewhere in the subconscious, but it's not plotted out word for word. It just isn't. Grant, you're standing off stage waiting to be introduced. Do you still get the jitters? Do you get nervous? I think most people do. But at the same time, I think it's oftentimes we confuse nervousness, we confuse butterflies with just excitement. If you think through like non-speaking moments where you've had a similar experience, you know, I can think about like when I proposed to my wife or like a big job interview or when your kids are born, like you feel those butterflies. And and I'm not feeling those butterflies because I think I'm going to propose to this girl that I've dated for a while. And I think there's a chance she's going to say no. I felt pretty confident going into that. that It was going to be okay. And thankfully it was, but I still feel like that level of of emotion and excitement. I think it's your body's response to saying like, hey, this is important. Heads up, this is a big deal. This really, really matters. And so I'm oftentimes more concerned if I'm not nervous before a talk because it's kind of like, eh, maybe it's a low stakes event and it's not that big a deal. And it's not that important. I don't want to get into the habit of phoning it in or just going through the motions just because I didn't think it was that important. I think any speaker gets a little bit of those nerves, but I think again, it's not necessarily nerves or anxiety as much as just it's excitement. And I think we can confuse it for, uh, I'm terrified of speaking. You're not terrified of speaking you're just really excited about what you're getting ready to do because it's significant and it's important. Kind of like getting hyped up. Sure. Yeah. I think the other side of it is for speakers, depending on the nature of the talk and the presentation and the context, is it's easy to overhype. You know, like we were talking about earlier, if you are, I'm so hyped up and I'm so pumped up and I go out there like I'm speaking to a thousand people and there's 10 people in the room. Again, you just come across goofy and it come across way over the top. So your energy has to match that of the room. Otherwise, again, it just comes across weird. Jillian, I want to transition here. You are running the Choose FI Speakers Bureau. Tell me a little bit about how you got involved with that and what your goals are. Yeah, because I love speaking and I'm really passionate about it. I think it's just a great medium to bring a new message and to connect with someone in a very new way. I mean, there is so much information online, but a lot of people aren't looking for it. So my vision behind it was what if we could get more people talking about personal finance by just bringing speakers to them and making, you know, showing up quite literally at their events, at their place of work, at the conferences that they're attending and creating those moments and those stories where someone is passionately sharing about something they care about and it connects with an audience and inspires them to learn more. Grant, describe the speaker's training you offer and who should be participating. Who are you looking for to be involved? 
Yeah. So the, the training that we run is called booked and paid to speak. And so if someone's looking for help and understanding how to find and book gigs, so I'm interested in speaking. I like speaking. I'm passionate about speaking. I've done a little bit of it. I've got good feedback. want to do more of it. No clue what to do next. Then that's really where we, we come in and help as well as for speakers who maybe I've done a couple of gigs and there've been some stuff that has been word of mouth. It's fallen in my lap, but I want to proactively uh, have a system for being able to get gigs more than just hoping that things fall into my lap. Now that's the core of what we teach uh, inside of booked and paid to speak. And then inside the new book, the success successful speakers, uh, five steps for booking gigs, getting paid and building your platform. So that walks through the, the framework of what we teach. And Nisha, I'm sure that as the person who created it and runs the Physician Side Gigs Facebook group, you get lots of questions about public speaking. What do you tell your physician colleagues about public speaking and the role it could play in their career? I do get asked that question almost on a daily basis these days. And I think that the first thing that I really like to ask people is to kind of figure out what their why is with regards to speaking, right? Is it that you're trying to build a brand? Is it that you're trying to get your research out there? What are you trying to do exactly with it? Because I think everybody is sort of enamored by this idea of speaking, but then the question is, is what's the end game, right? And what are you trying to strive towards? And so I think for me, that's the first thing that I always try to elucidate when people say, I want to do more speaking. And it's, well, is it you want to get paid by a pharma company to give some speeches related to some products and it's a monetary thing and it's just an extra job? Or is it you're trying to get a message out? What is it exactly that you're trying to do? And I think that guides exactly what kind of advice I give, right? Because then you start talking about are you going more down a branding pathway? Are you going more down a networking pathway? And obviously some of those things are part and parcel to each other. And have to happen in conjunction with each other. But your approach to developing a career as a physician speaker is going to be very different depending on what exactly you're trying to do with it. And so I think that's what I try to get to first. A lot of my questions are related to how do you decide what to charge and how do you get these events and all of those things. And I think that we've already gone into a little bit about how I view pricing. I obviously encourage people to make sure that it's worth their time because it can sound really good to get paid a certain amount, but I want them to realize how much work they're going to put in and, and then decide whether or not it's really worth it to do things at those prices or not. And then in terms of finding stuff, I think that that is everyone's biggest question, right? I mean, as you already alluded to, Grant, that I think is the hardest part when you're first getting started, right? How do you increase that volume to a point where it becomes a substantial thing? And do you do things for free for a little bit until you get your name out there? And those are all questions that I get all the time. And I think the answer is different for everyone. I think it's totally okay to start out doing some things for free, get your name out there, get a little bit of a CV on board, and then be able to market yourself to other people. Are you going to be proactive about it and seek things out? Or are you going to have people come to you and then just decide whether or not you want to do it? There's so many different approaches. And when it's not your main career, and when it's truly a side gig, there's a different approach to it that really requires sort of analyzing how big of a thing you want it to turn into before you decide how much effort you're going to put into it. Grant, is there a simple answer to the question, how do I book my first gig? Well, one thing would is just to make sure that everyone in your sphere of influence knows that you're a speaker and knows what you speak about. You know, listening to this and deciding, yeah, I want, I want to be a speaker. I want to do more gigs. That does squat for you. And so let everyone in your sphere of influence know, your friends, family, colleagues, coworkers, anybody know that you're a speaker. This is who you speak to. This is what you speak about. Now, you may be thinking, but none of those people book speakers. That's okay. But they may know someone who does. My mom does not book a speaker for anything that I know of, but she may know of someone who does. Getting booked as a speaker is very much being top 
of mind at the right place at the right time for people. So if I don't know that you're a speaker, I'm never going to know to be able to recommend you. So that would be a big thing is just make sure everybody knows that you're a speaker and knows and is very, very clear on what you speak about and who you speak to. Yeah. So actually along those lines, I completely agree with that. I actually recently last week had an interaction with a good friend of mine who I've known for probably a decade, who knows what I'm doing in the finance space and in the business and finance space for physicians. And he knows that I run this group called Physician Side Gigs. And so he assumed that I knew speakers. And so he reached out to me and he goes, hey, do you know somebody that could speak to my group about physician burnout? And I was like, you realize that's what I do and why I started Physician Side Gigs, right? And he was like, no, actually, I didn't know that. And I, I was like, wow, we've known each other for a really long time. But I, you know, depending on how you know somebody and the persona that they see of you most often, they do forget what it is that you do. So I definitely agree with that in terms of just making sure that people know exactly what it is that you're about. Because you might assume that people have seen things on your Facebook feed and know that you do things, but really they haven't, right? Or you may have assumed that they've seen things on your LinkedIn profile, but they haven't. They know you as you and they don't know this other aspect of your life. So definitely have to get it out there if you really want to. And Jillian, what has public speaking added to your life? I would say it's changed the dynamic that I have with my audience because it's created connections that are just so different than I had through blogging or podcasting or any of that. It's how I've made so many relationships with other public speakers, with event planners, with organizers, with other creatives. It's been amazing to just build those kinds of relationships. I couldn't have said it better. Speaking in my life has led to connections. And I think that's what all of us want is to be able to get up and talk to people and really connect, whether it be about a certain piece of content or just to be part of a community. And I think all of you do that wonderfully. I'm going to give you each a chance to tell me what's up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet. Nisha, you want to go first? Sure. I don't really know what's next. I'm going to continue to follow along the same pathway. I definitely love speaking. My bigger goals in regards to my speaking are really to get in front of more audiences that don't necessarily buy into what it is that I do and what I'm about, because I think that it's really important for them to hear those stories. And I've seen so many people change their opinions after being able to put a face on some of these issues. So for me, it's really how do I get to new audiences such that I'm not just preaching to the choir, to the people who already know me and believe in what I talk about, but how do I get to people that I haven't reached before? In terms of how you can find me, my website is actually just self-named. So it's just www.nishamethamd.com, N-I-S-H-A-M-E-H-T-A-M-D.com. And if you click on my portfolio section, you can see a lot of the topics that I speak about. If there's synergy there, please reach out. Grant, what's up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet? Yeah, everything that we do is over at thespeakerlab.com, thespeakerlab.com. We have a podcast by the same name, Speaker Lab Podcast, and have uh, plenty of free resources there for speakers and those interested in speaking. Uh, one of the things I know we kind of touched on was uh, speaking fees. We have a, a free speaking fee calculator. When people ask, how much should I charge as a speaker? The answer is it depends, but that's a horrible answer. So we have a, a free calculator that people can answer. I think it's like seven or eight questions, and it'll tell you what you should be charging as a speaker. So totally free over at my speakerfee.com. Uh, the big thing right now is the, the new book. Like I mentioned, uh, The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid and Building Your Platform. All the information about the book is on Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and you can find details at thespeakerlab.com slash book. So Jillian, what's up next in your life and where can we find you? 
Yeah, I'm really excited about my new podcast, Everyday Courage with Jillian Johnsrud. So that's going to be one of my big focuses for this year. And you can find me there or on Instagram, uh, jillianjohnsrud.com. And my website is by the same name. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Grant, Nisha, and Jillian. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So we're here with Dan Huffman from KeepInvestingSimpleStupid.com. And today we're going to talk a little bit about emergency funds Dan, I was reading one of your articles and I saw back in 2018 when you're talking about emergency funds that the estimate was that 34% of people or so in any given year would have to dip into their emergency fund. I bet that's a little bit different right now. Yeah, actually, Doc, I just came across a recent bake rates survey that found 40% of people would have to dip into either credit card or borrow the money from family or friends or do some type of probably unbeneficial loan to cover an expense of just $1,000. So we're not much better off now than we were before the financial crisis back in 2009. So it's funny that we even call it an emergency fund. If 40% of our population in any given year is using it, then it's not really an emergency fund anymore. It's just a fund. Right. One of the things that I've gotten into as well is separating out what are emergencies versus what are known reoccurring but future expenses. And so I try to tease out my savings into both an emergency fund and a sinking fund approach. Maybe think of it like two different buckets. Do you think that's a common problem that people aren't actually identifying critically emergencies and what they're doing is just poor budgeting from step one? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when the tire blows on my car, that could be an emergency if I have no money saved up, but it's just a sinking fund item if I have the money saved up in my sinking fund. So definitely. Yeah. So when you say sinking fund, what you're really talking about is reasonable budgeting, right? So if you own a home, you should budget a certain amount for repairs every year. If you own a car, you should figure that there's a certain amount of maintenance fees. Those aren't really emergency fund type things. You should have already set aside money in your budget for those type of things. Yeah, exactly. I think I've heard the example before of people who have kids and then they say that their kid is going to school and they have to buy clothes because it's an emergency because they didn't expect their kid to grow. We all know that's going to happen. So just having that money in advance. And then I'm a big advocate of trying to get people to understand that when you have that sinking fund, you have that emergency fund, you can actually make a small amount of interest on it instead of pay interest on the back end of it. So it just makes a bad situation or a normal situation just that little 2% better. And when we're talking about this idea of what is that quote unquote sinking fund versus emergency fund, it hits me that most people don't really know how to calculate what the appropriate amount is for their emergency funds. What do you usually tell people is the rule of thumb for calculating your emergency fund? Well, the easy rule of thumb is just the whole three to six months worth of fixed plus variable expenses. 
And I know that that can get to be a little bit of a mouthful. So when I think about it, your fixed expenses are my rent. If I have an auto loan, I don't, but if I did, or any type of other reoccurring payment that's fixed every single month, it's the same. Those are so easy to budget for. You can put those in one column. And then you have things like your utilities, your water, gas, whatever other, you know, fuel for your car, any of those types of bills. And then you can add up what you tend to average out paying a month over the past six months. And then you can add up that. And then you just take it times three for a minimally funded emergency fund or six for a fully funded emergency fund. But I think too, that it really depends on what type of job you have. Doc, I've heard that you've changed from more of a traditional medical practice to more working on your own and doing that type of work. And so I don't know if the different economies or different situations that go on, they may in fact impact your job and your income a little bit more than the more traditional or steady medical work. And so certain people may need even a larger emergency fund than other people, or as Jim Collins calls it, you know, the FU fund for just being able to have the flexibility to walk away and do what you want to do when you want to do it. A few important salient points you brought out there. Let's start with the first one. I like the fact that you were talking about expenses and not income. I think a lot of people try to build up their emergency fund based on income, and that's really not the point, correct? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the things that becomes a barrier to them is they think if they have to have six months worth of their income saved up, that's a really huge amount of money. For a lot of people, this could literally be 15 to 20 grand that's set aside. And again, it's really just there to cover your expenses. So the other thing is we need to have a flexible spending approach. And so if something were to happen, you would have to decrease expenditures as well. So there's a couple different ways to go about this. The other interesting point you made is that for different people, the needs of their emergency fund could be quite different. I have to admit, as a physician, I always thought that I needed less of an emergency fund, not just as a physician, but also as a business person. And the reason why is I figured that my job was pretty recession-proof. I believe that a lot of people who think like me have had their confidence eroded slightly by what's happening lately. Even physicians are being furloughed and their pay is being cut even as they're being called to the front lines. But it's an interesting idea that different people need different types of emergency funds. For instance, I can think of someone who has a online business who their numbers and their profits may change drastically depending on time of year or even if Google's algorithm or Amazon's algorithm changes. Those people probably want a much higher emergency fund. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And like you mentioned too, a lot of times I think high income and high earners do just tend to think that they're more safe and they'll have enough to be able to cash flow an emergency. But really it is these times like this where they may actually come to realize how much of their outgo is on a given month. And they may realize they're, they're overextended and they just never realized it because they had a big enough shovel to cover up the hole behind them. The other thing I, I think that happens to high income earners is they always figure, well, if I don't have the cash, I can use my credit card and then make more money and pay it off. Or I can use the line of credit. Is that faulty thinking? I don't know if it's faulty thinking, but I wouldn't say it's the best thinking. I mean, anytime you do that, if you don't pay that off before the interest is due, then you're now making your emergency or your, you know, the future purchase you should have planned for. You're making it more expensive by whatever the interest rate is on your credit card. So it's more prudent to save in advance and, you know, be prepared, I would say. A lot of people view emergency funds or sinking funds as kind of a waste of money because the money's not growing much. It's not invested. It's not as big as the stock market. 
But really, I think we should view it the same way we would view a life insurance policy. That's also wasted money until we die. And so hopefully we don't need that, but we will all die once. But before then, we'll probably all have multiple emergencies and multiple expenditures that we don't want to go in debt for. So that's how I choose to think about it. I've seen many people cavalierly say, sure, I have an emergency fund. It's in my S&P 500 index or it's in VTSAX. What's wrong with that thinking? That is a big thing, I think, especially over the past 11 years. We had the longest bull market in American history. And I think too many, especially new investors, that's all they know. And so they think, well, of course, I'm going to put it in VTSAX. I'd rather save a lesser amount for my emergency fund, invest it, let it ride. And when I have the emergency, I'll just pull it out and I'll have more money. The problem is it's usually hard economic times come when the stock market's down or you lose your job when the stock market's down. And now you're double dipping from less income, plus you're having to sell shares on sale. Back in 2000, I think it was eight, one of my uncles lost his job. And it was really, really sad because they ended up spending through their retirement savings while the stock market was down 51%. You know, that didn't last very long. And they were forced to move to a completely different state and take a job that he did not want to do. But they did it because that was the situation they were in. And if you have that rainy day fund saved in something that's not too exciting, it can at least carry you quite a ways. I see a lot of people worry about opportunity costs. So they don't like this idea of money sitting in a bank account, not making any interest. What can we do with our emergency fund so that it at least makes something? You know, the best I recommend is just a high interest savings account from an online bank. Right now, mine's around 1.65%. And I think that's pretty good. I think there's a couple that are a little bit higher. But really, again, anything you make on this that's better than your own bank savings account is really acceptable. We just don't want to fall too far behind inflation. You know, I think, again, it's that opportunity cost of not being in stocks that gets most people. But one of the things that I was playing around with earlier was on Morningstar and just comparing VTSAX with VFSTX, which is one of Vanguard's short-term bond funds, which pretty much equals the interest rates. And what I noticed is that from 1993 to 2019, if I just look at a five-year time frame on there, almost every five-year time frame these are very, very close from the start of that time frame to the end of that time frame in the same value. So even though there are periods of time where BTSAX blew this fund out of the water, by the end of that period, there was a bear market to where all of a sudden the interest bearing count, you know, was honestly just about equal in value to it. In a couple of timeframes, the interest account was actually higher over a five-year time period. So I think it's important for people to realize that the last 10 years were really more of an anomaly than anything else. And if we plan on having a bear market about every six years or so on average, we're taking that big risk that we may be underwater of where our interest account might have been. So there's a big opportunity to that too. I would agree with you that it really does feel like these last 10 years have been an anomaly. And many of us who have come of age financially during this time maybe are not as careful or conservative as is necessary in these changing economic times. So most of us just haven't seen that many bear markets. I certainly have lived through 2002 and 2008, but I'm a little bit old for this community too. So my feelings about emergency funds and diversification, I think are a little bit more old school than your average new personal finance junkie. What would you say has changed from now versus let's say 2000? to 2002 and 2007 to 2009. What have you done different each time? Do you think that's prepared you or set you up better for this time? 
Back then, I was younger, 2002. I didn't even have a family yet. So I didn't really worry about it much. I was at that point really building my physician practice. And if you had told me in 2002 or 2008 that something could happen that would change my ability to make money as a physician, I would have told you, no way, that's not even possible. So this is the first recession in which I actually feel as a physician, my income could be affected. I happen to be lucky enough that in my mid-40s, being a careful saver and having diversified into real estate, stocks, bonds, as well as the business asset class of side hustles and owning my own practice, that I have enough income streams that I don't feel too worried about the swings of the market. I've definitely seen my portfolio drop a quarter, but that was expected and I knew it was coming at some point and I have enough income sources. I'm not worried about it, but these are different times. Even my real estate investments, I own four rental properties and this idea that all of those tenants could just decide not to pay and I wouldn't really have much recourse If you had asked me five or 10 years ago, I would have never thought of that as a possibility. So this is opening up my eyes. I really believe that we are in the midst of a black swan event. If we survive it and do okay, it will make us much smarter, more careful investors. And I think this gets back to the whole idea of an emergency fund. I knew I was pulling back at work over the last few years. So I have an emergency fund of probably over a year's worth of spending But I also know that between dividends and rents, that year can spread into two pretty easily. I was starting to be conservative anyway because where I was in my career trajectory, but I'll be a lot more careful. Uh, This has shaken my confidence in the markets, not so much that I'm pulling money out, not so much that I'm staying up at night worrying about it, but I would be if I was probably in my 30s and was kind of in that in-between point. If I was in my 20s, I figure everything was okay because I was so young. But if I was in my 30s and was really at that kind of mid-career building point, this would shake me quite a bit. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm actually in my mid-30s, almost exactly on the dot. And, you know, I have a little bit more job security maybe than the average mid-30s person because I'm in the military. And so, Unless I do something completely stupid or get injured to a certain degree, you know, I'm, my paycheck is steady and it won't be decreased. You know, I'm not going to be furloughed, even though I'm teleworking a little bit right now. But I just hope that, yeah, so many of my peers and even your peers, because I feel like a lot of yours are behind the curve in their mid 40s and mine are hopefully catching up or on getting on the curve, at least right now in our mid 30s. But I would like to think that, you know, your age group would have caught up in the 2007 to 9 crash, and it doesn't seem like that's changed a lot. And so I'm optimistic for mine and the younger generations, but I just hope that, you know, people like you, people like me, and all the other awesome bloggers out there, I hope we can reach enough people in our own unique ways to really help them know that, you know, this is a serious event, well, not to be taken lightly, really to prepare for that next one. And ironically... It feels awfully nice to have a job that's pseudo-stable that I know that I'll be getting an income from, even if it's much reduced than what I was doing before. It feels like a blessing. And to many of us in this community who are considering retiring early or chomping at the bit to leave work, this is a little bit of water in the face and maybe in a good way. Yeah, no, I think for anyone who's considering an early retirement right now, this is a good test. It's It's a good gut check, I think really helps you know how much your portfolio truly can weather and how much you can truly weather. 
Well, whether retired, thinking about retirement, or at the beginning of your career, understanding emergency funds, planning for them, and having them in times of need like this one is important. Dan Huffman, thanks for being on. The website is keepinvestingsimplestupid.com. It was a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thanks, Dr. Keith. And to me, this was an episode that I've been kicking around in my head for a while and have wanted to do because public speaking just means a lot to me personally. Yeah. Um, But I think it's a good topic for our general audiences. I think it relates to personal finance. It's not exactly topical, um, but it relates to getting your message out. And and there's some people like Grant who make money doing it. Yeah. but I just, it's one of those topics that I think doesn't, it doesn't have to be 100% on topic for the podcast for it to be interesting and worth talking about. So, yeah. So I'm excited about it. But. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.